0: Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. What everyone is concerned about, of course, is a parole hearing today for Paul Bernardo. Uh, It was 25 years since Bernardo was convicted of first-degree murder in the deaths of Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey. Uh, And now he is having a parole board hearing. And uh, some of the comments I've seen on social media, people are outraged by this. Uh, It was part of the sentence 25 years ago, so we knew this date was coming. Uh, some are suggesting that, uh, that well, he shouldn't be allowed, he's going to walk out of here. I, I think that's highly unlikely. Uh, to try to get some clarity on, on what's going on and why it's going on, uh, I want to bring Jeff Manishin into the conversation, criminal lawyer with Ross McBride here in town, and of course a former Crown attorney as well. Jeff, I'm glad you had some time. Thanks so much for joining us today. Certainly, The outrage is well founded. I I relived this when I knew this was coming up. We we cover this story extensively, of course. I talked to both the French and Mahaffey families. Uh, We talked with the investigating officers. It's something that I'm I'm sure not just the French and Mahaffey families, but a whole lot of people in this community uh, are still very upset about. It was one of the most gruesome uh, stories I think anybody has ever covered. Uh, But notwithstanding that, uh, this is part of the process, isn't it? Certainly, I mean,
1: and if we compare it to the states, you'll recall I think Sir Han Sirhan has applied for parole,
0: so did Charles you know, Manson over the years he?
1: And, and so did Charles Manson I mean the concept of potential eligibility for parole means you get to have a parole hearing
0: and 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 period end of sentence this is not getting soft on crime this is part of the judicial process and part of the uh, of the the criminal justice system
1: that's correct and and it's it's for that reason I mean when you have uh, Um, You know, a situation where if somebody's involved in multiple acts of murder and you can have a longer period of time for parole ineligibility. eligibility, okay, so, so, uh, you know, might it be 75 years, as we've seen recently, or 25 plus 25 plus 25. That's 75 years before parole eligibility, okay. For Bernardo at that time, it was first-degree murder and it was life imprisonment and it's no eligibility for parole till he served 25 years.
0: Because in, those days, eligibility for parole. because in those days they were all concurrent sentences. That's right. So he was never going to get more than 25 before he was going to be eligible. Yeah, that's right. So so that's why this process is unfolding. Yeah. Now, talk to us a little bit about the process, Jeff. What is going to be happening? Well, how it works, it's there's a
1: hearing, and I think it's three. I've never actually, candidly, Bill, I've never done a parole hearing, but I'm generally familiar with it hearing is held at the, deta- at, the, at the penitentiary, and the Parole Board of Canada has its representatives there. I think it's a three-person panel, and they get the decision, you know, they get the discretion to decide whether the person should or shouldn't be granted parole. And they consider the risk that the offender might present to society if released. They'll determine if and to what extent that risk can be managed in the community. And the overriding consideration is protection of society. So there's a huge difference between being eligible for parole and getting parole, and loads of people who apply for parole don't get it. So the hue and cry saying, oh, gee, he's going to get parole. No, how it'll work, too, whether the family members of the victims are given the opportunity to kind of be heard and put their position forward. I think it's something you and I have talked about in the past. From the standpoint of victim impact evidence, and that's a change. It didn't used to happen that they got that opportunity to be heard, but that's been permitted. And remembering that the the parole board isn't considering expressly the impact that the crimes had on the families of the victims in addition to the victims, but it's still their perspectives, and I'm sure they'd still live in, in fear about the concept of him potentially being released, and so would the community at large. And he'll be represented by counsel and uh, the parole board. Their particular concern, Bill, and I think one of the reasons maybe I haven't done parole hearings, I've always been of the understanding, their real concern, they're really interested in hearing from the offender. They don't hear from the lawyer. It's not a lawyer so much making submissions. They want to deal with direct, uh, directly addressing the offender, and they want to understand any indications of remorse, any in- insights into how and why the offense was committed and how the institutional record, you know, the individual's been in the institution and what their potential release plan is, and try and determine. And, you know, I've heard the phrase criticized the issue of a manageable risk. But anybody who's offended, committed a serious criminal offense, one can say, gee, there is a potential risk of reoffending. There's no 100% guarantee they won't reoffend. But the concept of parole, there would be a parole officer responsible for providing supervision for the offender, potentially released into the community. But it doesn't happen. I mean, Carla Homolka, you may or may not recall, she wound up being eligible for parole, didn't apply, came up at the level of mandatory supervision after after having served two-thirds of her sentence. She got gated and served her full term. Mm -hmm. She went to warrant, warrant expiry. So for parole, specifically for Bernardo, and we're dealing with the life sentences and parole eligibility or ineligibility, that's what we've been talking about.
0: Now, I, I've talked in the past uh, with some members that actually served on parole boards, and, not, and they're, they're retired, long retired, but uh, you've brought something up that's rather interesting. You mentioned that uh, both the French and Mahaffey families are going to be making uh, victim impact statements uh, at this hearing today. Uh, but you also said that the, the pri- primary goal should be, uh, obviously, this, the public safety. Is, is there a balance? Is there a ratio there? I mean, the gravity of the crimes, I assume, is still has to be weighted here, uh, which is why they're allowing the families to speak. But how much weight does that actually carry when they're making the determination?
1: Well, I think what we would look at, Bill, um, is to the extent that they're identifying the potential risk to public safety will characterize it that the experiences of victims and their families can be weighed in, in the overall mix of that. It's not a mathematical type of exercise. It's it's would we call it holistic, would we call it an overarching, we're taking a look at the full picture. The offender, his institutional performance, but also what the crimes were. And it's been said sometimes, Bill, the best predictor predictor of future performance is past performance. When you've involved an in acts as horrific as this, the potential for harm that could be created by uh, a recurrence of this behavior would really cause the parole board to be exceptionally concerned about that. This isn't somebody who broke a window, and this isn't somebody who was involved in the drinking and driving
0: accident. This is much more than that. Uh, he's serving right now for the deaths of, of Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey. Uh, but we do know that uh, that there was a lot more to it. I mean, the, you know, the death of, of Hamoka's sister, uh, certainly the the Scarborough rapist stories, uh, which, of course, we didn't find out until sometime after the arrests were made, uh, that there was a connection there. Does that get weighted into this decision, too, even not though he right. may not be serving time for that?
1: Well, no, in fact, Bill, he is. He is. You may not recall it, but he pled guilty to the Scarborough rapes and was found to be a dangerous offender. Under the criminal code, and what does so, that say, so what does that
0: designation we'll, mean now?
1: We'll talk about that, okay? Because that's again something that doesn't get let's characterize it as adequately covered or or reflected here. Um, in certain respects, Bill, uh, uh, the idea of a dangerous offender. Uh, that status is determined after there's evidence from psychiatrists that is presented to a judge, and a judge for his when a judge makes a finding that the individual has been involved in a series of offenses where uh, he or she has uh, not controlled his conduct in the past, and there's a real risk he won't do he, he won't control it in the future. That's an indeterminate period of sentence in a penitentiary. And the person basically has a review of that. It's got to be at least seven years from the day on which they're taken into custody, and uh, there's a review thereafter every two years to review if the person should or shouldn't be granted parole. And so, for in relation to uh, Mr. Bernardo, um, he he would have had reviews. He actually, I think, his dangerous offender, his sentence for that was before 1977. He actually would get a review every year. So. Unless I'm mistaken, Bill, the parole board would have already been looking at his situation, could have been looking at his situation from a dangerous offender status in the past. They may not have had to, having regard to the fact that he's doing 25 before he's eligible eligible at all. But, Bill, this is the key, is when they are looking at his potential parole eligibility for the, the two murders, they will undoubtedly be aware of the Scarborough rapes and the dangerous offender status. So, if there was any question about him potentially being able to get get out because of the French and Mahaffey murders, well, when you add the dangerous offender and the scar rapes into the mix, what does it tell you when I use that phrase concern the protection of society and a review of the behavior?
0: Well, obviously, there's a, there's a conflict there, isn't there? Well, the way I'd put it is a compounding effect.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's not conflict; it's a compounding effect.
0: So, so to some extent, I mean, I can understand
1: the public's concern over the fact that he is having this parole hearing, okay? And, and by the way, he doesn't have to apply for it. There are people who are in there for a period of time that might say, I'm not going to seek parole. You don't have to apply for parole, but he's eligible, so he is applying. But, but how much time is it going to take for the parole board to try and determine for somebody who's really one of the very worst offenders that we've ever had in the criminal justice system, with a pattern of behavior that was found to render him dangerous by a judge, together with these two horrific murders. I mean, realistically, what's the potential that he'll get out?
0: I, I, w- I would like to think Slim and Nunn. And, and Slim just left town. As exactly. Yeah, oh, was, yeah.
1: yeah. So, so I appreciate the, the public concern, but if, as you raise, it's, it's a matter he's entitled to it as a matter of law, fine. Uh, but but I think that it's a very overwhelming case to suggest that he will not get out.
0: And and I I feel sorry for the families because I know they're going to relive this. And as I say, when they go and make their statements again today, uh, it's it's going to open uh, up old wounds that which are probably never going to go away. True. Uh, so it's got to be very difficult for them. But it's it is part of the process. And we've seen other violent offenders. I mean, you know, Robert Pickford, Clifford Olson. I mean, the, the list goes on of people that you knew darn well were never going to get out but according to the system, they are allowed to apply for it. Some do, some don't. Sure, and and Bill, you know, an option.
1: And, of course, you know, it's open for families of victims to consider what they do and don't want to do, okay? And they're entitled to be able to have that opportunity period. You know, the option could have been for them to provide a written statement that could simply be presented. They don't have to. There's no requirement that they attend from the standpoint of, evaluating whether anything they say would or wouldn't realistically make a difference. You know, it may well be that somebody advising them to say, look, he's not getting out anyway. You don't have to. If it's too stressful for you, it's too emotionally challenging, and I would respect that. You don't have to be there. We'll find another way to get your message there. But if they say, no, we feel we have to, they're entitled to be there, that's fine. And yeah, I think going along with that will be um, an enormous emotional stress.
0: We're told by the uh, the lawyer that will be representing, Bernardo, that uh, that he will, at this hearing, uh, indicate that he will take full responsibility for his crimes and, quote-unquote, express remorse. Does that mean anything to anybody at this point? No, I
1: wouldn't think so. I mean, that uh, put it this way, Bill, if he's going to go through the exercise of having a parole hearing, yeah, it's almost essential he's going to have to do that. But it will be for the parole board to really question that and really evaluate that. And uh... you know uh, the fact that he pled guilty to the Scarborough rapes is is a compelling piece to say, look, well, he accepted that responsibility. That's fine, and he he did do that. But he pled not guilty at the at the uh, the trials involving French and Mahaffey. And sure it's open for him to be able to uh, to accept responsibility. You know, the obvious first question any parole authority officer would ask. It's the one that I always am uh, interested in. I would be if I was ever a judge, which isn't going to happen. But as a crown defense counsel, why did you do it?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Why did you do it? What went through your mind? How could you have thought, and how could you have acted in the way that you did not once but twice? The level of planning and deliberation, the level of cruelty you know, and torture, the, I mean, the, the sur- all the circumstances of the offense. It's not just you feel badly for what you did. If I was a parole officer, I, to try and develop an understanding of his, quote, insight, unquote, into what's happened I'd want to explore that and the odds are pretty good he's not going to be able to tell me anything that I'm going to say oh I see okay well then that's acceptable and it shows you developed an insight where you can get
0: out how probing are those questions going to be from the board there's a discretion on the part of the parole officers
1: you know I mean they they can they are the ones who have to be satisfied on identifying the issue of risk and that's why I say to you Bill you know and, and, and there's, a, there's a documentary series a terrific documentary filmmaker named John Kastner has done some uh, I think they we're on CBC years back on I think it was the parole dance something like that on the whole parole process showing parole hearings. So listeners that want to track that down K A S T N E R John Kastner is the name of the director. There are documentaries about the way it works, and certainly they want they they put questions to the offender directly and and. The, it's what the offender says to them is going to be an important part of their decision, and the offender has to understand that.
0: Could you characterize that as, as grilling the, the individual? Well,
1: you know, I, I, I don't know if I'd use that phrase, Bill. It's, it, you know, it, it's, not, uh, it's not a cross-examination at a trial. But on the other hand, it certainly is. It's someone who is responsible for a decision on the issue of liberty has to feel satisfied that he or she has the answers that they're looking for, on issues that are important. So you'll ask, but you know, the, the hearings are not two and three days long or anything like that, Bill. You know, the hearings are shorter. I think they take like an hour, a couple hours at the most.
0: And when is the a decision rendered on this? I guess the
1: answer, that's a good question. The answer would be when the parole authorities are, are feel that they can reach that decision. I mean, it could well be they could make that decision the same day. Okay, they if they felt they needed to reserve on it for a period of time, they potentially could. But, but it would be for them to decide. Like, like any case, like any hearing, there's no sort of strict time limit to say you have to, you have an hour to think about it. No. They're the tribunal, and the, the issues would drive how long they do and don't
0: need Do, to. do they retire to, to talk about this and make a decision?
1: I, I don't think they'll discuss it in front of the offender. I think that they'll have the opportunity to be able to discuss it amongst themselves.
0: Uh, yeah, our friend Susan Claremont from The Spectator just tweeted a little while ago, she's up there today, and of course, okay. uh, and uh, she said she expected to be there till about 3 o'clock, and this starts at 10, so uh, I guess that's uh, to make some leeway for some of the people that may be making statements on this as well.
1: Yeah, sure, and uh, you know, I guess it, I- in terms of the amount of material that they need to cover and, you know, and so forth, as I say, Bill, I'm, I'm giving it just a very general understanding, because there are lawyers in, in, uh, in the country who pretty much specialize in doing um, correctional law. Dealing with parole and issues that arise from parole both at the provincial level and federal level. and uh, when i if I'm contacted, I've tended to refer to them because there's a a level of specialization. sure. And there are lawyers frequently who practice in the Kingston area or in Toronto where they they will develop, as I say, a particular skill set for this. Um, and and I defer to them because uh, I think they're the ones in the best position to do the best
0: job. Got a couple of minutes left. I want to talk about what if here for just a second, Jeff. And in the unlikely event, and I think it's highly unlikely that uh, that they decide to do this, is there a process? They don't just say, okay, uh, you can start. Is there is there a, a way to ease into the parole system, day parole, work permits, anything like that? Um, the concept
1: of, of day parole is normally you're eligible to get day parole three years before your first parole eligibility date. And how it would work is there's a series of escorted passes into the community, and then you can proceed to potentially unescorted passes into the community and ultimately build towards full parole. I know about that because many years ago, Bill, um, I did a, a faint hope clause case. That's one where uh, it would be open for an individual serving a sentence of life, no parole for 25 for first-degree murder could apply to have that parole eligibility time reduced. And there was a hearing process with the jury to be able to decide it, and I did one out in Brampton. And uh, in his case, I think the parole and eligibility was reduced from 25 years to, I think, 19 years. And that's where I learned about that process of... Um, prior to full parole, there is a form of, uh, of a series of steps and escorted and then unescorted and ultimately build the words full parole. And then the terms and conditions would be set by the parole board as to where the individual would be living and what kind of uh, uh, requirements they'd have to follow as conditions of parole.
0: And my understanding is that, for instance, they decide, okay, he can go back to uh, Toronto, for instance, uh, a facility there would have to accept him first, and they have that option, don't they?
1: you say a facility there i mean it, there are there are i think residential like half effectively like halfway houses or yeah. such as that sure and on, and that exercise though again Boy, the, the attention that a case like this would attract um, would be just enormous. I mean, you'll recall for Carla Homolka, the newspaper publicity, you know, when she was located, I think, down in uh, in uh, the Caribbean. Yeah, somewhere. Like yeah. that. Um, and then ultimately when she was she relocated to Quebec and the publicity that that covered with, and she changed her name, changed her appearance to some extent, married, but it still got enormous scrutiny. That's her. Bernardo, I think, would be every bit as extreme, if not uh, more so. And so the challenge for those required to supervise him would be significant. I mean, the purely academic theoretical exercise for him to try and be integrated back into Canadian society, Bill, how realistic is that?
0: Which is, uh, I hope, the, uh, the the main factor that they have in their minds as they uh, make their, their determinations today. Jeff, thanks so much for the time today, for putting some clarity on this. Really appreciate it.
1: Sure, and we'll see how things unfold, Bill. But as I say, I think uh, it's one that, that we won't have to worry about because I expect this parole application is going
0: to be denied. Yeah, I agree, too. Thanks again, Jeff. Okay, bye. Jeff Manishin, uh, criminal lawyer and, of course, former Crown. He's with Ross McBride now. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.